All right, well, here we go. Dr. Tyler Johnson, running for state senate. I have a, like a billion questions, but let's start with why. Well, we're running for Indiana State Senate District 14, and uh, really the why is this was a calling. I got called to do this about two and a half years ago. We didn't really know exactly what that looked like at the time. but When you say we, you mean you and your wife, My right? wife and I. Yeah. Yep, my wife's Alicia, and we're in this process together. So we're our family is running, right? So this isn't a, a lone wolf thing, and um, you, know, you bring uh, a lot of people come with you when you decide to do this. So we brought everybody into that decision-making process together. So we... Uh, we really felt called to get out and do more, kind of pre-COVID, actually, even. Um, our goal in life had been to retreat from things, and so we kind of bought a farm and uh, were homeschooling and kind of got out of the world, and uh, I think God kind of slapped us upside the head and said, you know, we need to get, get you back out there kind of thing. Interesting. It's, it's funny to watch you because not everybody knows. You and I went to high school together. You were grades older than me but your brother Riley was in the grade right above me. Correct. And my sister was really good friends with your wife. And it's just funny to watch because you and I kind of ran similar paths in life because we, I have done the same thing. I kind of retreated. We moved out to the country. We're getting ready to homeschool our children. And I felt that same kind of, I don't know if it's like your conscience tugging at you that maybe complete removal from everything is not the right way to go. So you felt that way even pre-COVID, you were kind of getting tugged back into you need to be more involved. Right. And I've always been kind of a bold individual and, you know, I have, I'm pretty open about where I stand on things. And so I can see how that really fits with this dynamic of getting into public service. Uh huh. And I, I really do want to talk about, because when, um, on your brochures, you're running on basically four principles, right? And I want to get into all, all four of those. But can you at least just give some people a background? There's probably a good chunk of people who are listening to this who don't even know who you are. Like, who are you? What do you do? Why is it relevant to what you're trying to become? Yeah, I'm, uh, I grew up in Northeast Indiana, in Grable, Indiana, and uh, went to Leo and... Um, after I graduated there, I went to St. Francis uh, for my undergrad, and then I'm actually an emergency physician. So I went to Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and then uh, Michigan State for my residency training. And so we came back to town a little over 10 years ago, and I've been working in the emergency department here in town uh, ever since then. And so we kind of the emergency department is a cool place because you meet everybody mm-hmm. and sometimes at their worst moment, right? Right. So, um, that dynamic's kind of a... Um, it's a great way to get to meet people and kind of connect with people and, um, and actually kind of care for people. And so that's our, our background. My wife's from here too. And you, as you said, our, our, our wives were actually each other's weddings. And so we go, go way back there. And it, uh, I really, um, involved locally, our, our church central ministries. Uh, we've been a big, big part of that. And that's been a big part of our lives over the years. And so, um, something you probably don't even remember is your dad actually married us. So, <laughs> I did not remember yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so it, uh, we're definitely connected there. And so, um, it, at the beginning of COVID became an elder at our church, uh, got called to do that. And so that's been an interesting process, keeping the church open and, uh, kind of trying to speak truth into things through this whole, whole thing. But, um, just involved in a lot of local 
local activities. We're big into sports with our kids. Mm -hmm. I've got 14, 10, uh, five and four year old. Um, my wife and I are uh, huge in, in, into adoption. We, we love adoption and um, think that's a huge way to be pro-life. But we'll, we can talk about that more later. But that's been Do you a, have an adopted we've child? We've adopted two kids, yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's a big big part of our, our life. And they're, they're our kids just like, just like our other kids. That's cool. Yeah. So you, you told me off air something that I had no idea. You're an ER physician that is a part of a physician's group that Parkview basically farms out to run your ERs. So you're... It's like a sub subcontractor, if you right. think about it that way. Yep. So we, we have a large group of physicians that staff all the emergency departments, ma mainly in the area, mostly Parkview. Um, that's because Parkview is essentially um, grown quite a bit. So a lot of the smaller outlying hospitals that we have staffed are now um, essentially either affiliated with or owned by Parkview. How many subgroups of Parkview are there? Are there multiple, like, is the gastroenterological wing, is, are they subsidized guys? Like, how many are those? Yeah, like that? so there's PPG physicians group, sure. the Parkview physicians group. And so there are a large number of groups like cardiology, gastroenterology, family medicine. That are Parkview employees. Correct, correct. And and that's the, that's the trend in um, medicine now is to be... Um, essentially employed by a health system because insurance, business practice, all those things are things that a lot of physicians don't want to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like the easy thing to do is just go collect a paycheck and see patients, right? So you're employed under that that model, so you don't have to worry about the insurance and business side of things as much. But that puts you in a really interesting spot, especially when COVID hit, because we talked again off air. I should have been recording it the whole time. One of the problems that we've had with COVID, and it's not just with Parkview. I'm, we're not trying to poke holes at Parkview, but with medical institutions in general, is there are a few people at the top making decisions that the entire group then is supposed to follow. And unfortunately, a lot of times those people who are making those decisions aren't even physicians. And so they're saying you have to make or do certain policies. And we heard about that all across the country. There's certain things that you're not allowed to get when you go to the hospital with COVID. There's things that you have to get. And it's just a strange dynamic. I don't know how we got here, but you had said this is probably the big part of the why medicine isn't working. Is we've taken doctors out of doctoring. Um, a little aside, I had... One of my patients who was the sickest COVID patient, he got COVID really, really bad, had to go to the hospital. He actually had you as a physician. He came back and told me, I didn't tell you this, but he said that you were wonderful. So Good to hear. Yeah. Good to hear. Not everybody, uh, you don't always get good positive <laughs> feedback, right? So that's, that's good. But uh, yeah, I think um, something you said is really it's a dynamic of this top-down heavy approach yeah. where, you know, really um, medicine has been done at the local level for a long time. Like we take our guidance from big studies. We try to develop our own plan with our own patients, those kind of things. And so that dynamics changed even pre COVID, you know, sure. Um, you, you have these big national guidelines. Those are considered standards. You don't deviate from those. Um, and that's kind of the dynamic in medicine now where 
that can be good to some extent to have the knowledge and, and those kind of things to work off of. We, we can't forget that we have an individual patient, mm-hmm. a person, a human being in front of us, right? And so uh, people forget that it's not just a, a test tube or a lab and that kind of stuff. So that dynamic is really something I worry about more is that we want to make sure we're taking care of people and that underlying human being first, even more so than the medicine or the, the biology of things. Um, and so that kind of big dynamic or big top-down approach doesn't allow for that individualization and kind of meeting patients where they're at. And, um, you know, we try to connect with people. We don't always do that. You know, we uh, take care of people in crisis and emergency and, you know, we're human, human too, right? So it, um, but it is interesting. I do think COVID highlighted a lot of those things where you essentially said at the federal level, we're going to do this. Right. And then, it wasn't, I don't have a problem so much with saying, hey, here's a good treatment. This is what we're going to, this is the treatment that we're going to recommend for a lot of people. The problem is, is that you lose a lot of discussion um, when it's a heavy handed approach with that, right? So we, we lose discussion at the national level, at the local level, at the hospital level, where we should be talking about, hey, is this good or bad? Or is this the right thing or not the right thing? And, and you know, everybody would be lying to you if we didn't know exactly the sure. right answer and a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, medicine is is imperfect and we try to, you know, figure out new things as quickly as we can. And so I, I do cut uh, physicians and healthcare in general a lot of slack those, you know, first couple months. And, you know, we didn't have the answers. I didn't have the answers, but it really bothers me more that the lack of, you know, you start discussing things and then it gets suppressed and shut down that's probably the biggest, biggest issue of all of it. When you say we have the answer, well, you know, you start asking questions and then right. it's like, well, uh, maybe we don't have the answer, but you can't question it because we've already decided that those are the, those are the right things to do. Yeah. I think you're right. Expecting us to get it right. And, you know, day 60 was, it was just never going to happen, but the, it was a, so strange how the suppression of discussion, right? Because that is that is one of the things about science and medicine is that it's kind of this amoeba amorphous thing that is always constantly changing. And I don't know if your education as an osteopath is what kind of sets you apart from other medical doctors, but I feel like most of the medical doctors that I come in contact with, either through I'm seeing patients that that they they have seen or co-treated they have lost the there's an individual in front of me there's a person that I am trying to treat that has symptoms and that has a story and they really just get focused on what's the protocol what does the test say and if it doesn't line up then they don't actually get care or appropriate care do you think is it because you're an osteopath is it because you're you're more of a like you had said you're a bold person you have a little bit more courage to be able to step outside of what you're being told? Yeah, it's probably, it's probably a blend of those two things. You know, we have, there's a large group of physicians, both allopaths and MDs and osteopaths, DOs that are actually trying to break away from a lot of the corporate medicine. Really? Um, There really are. And um, not just healthcare systems, but insurance companies and those kind of things so that they can go back to practicing, not regressing in our knowledge, but just practicing with their patients, getting uh-huh. out of that pressure of, you know, that assembly line medicine that we talk about. And that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, you get in this kind of process of just 
kind of moving people along the process and you're not really sure if anything is getting done. You just, you know, you send them to the next consultant and, um, you know, we, we just kind of hope that things get done rather than you have an ownership of that <laughs> ownership of that process. So it's, it's a little, um, as you said, it's a little less personal than it has been. I think in training, um, in, me- in medical school, I think the osteopathic schools do have a little more focus on empathy and um, patient interaction. I did notice that when I came out of school a little bit more. I went to a, um, actually went to an allopathic residency program that had a blend of osteopaths and allopaths. Um, so it, uh, it wasn't as noticeable once we got through residency because you kind of learn your own style. So your own personality yeah. kind of comes through that. So I would say it's, it's a little bit of that, but it's a lot of personality and, um, I see a lot of bold physicians wanting to step out there and it doesn't even have any, a lot to do with COVID COVID un, unearthed some of that, but that movement was kind of starting before COVID even where it was like, we just need to get out away from, um, healthcare systems and, uh-huh. and insurance companies. And, um, it takes a, a person that's willing to work a little bit to do that. Right. As, yeah. as you know, there's the business of medicine is not easy. So running a practice and taking care of your patients um, so people are trying to develop systems and kind of knowledge bases to make that easier for them. I, people have asked me how I would fix healthcare and that's how I would do it. I'd bring back small practice. Yeah. I, would, I would try to bring back small practice. I would uh, change tort reform or how, how law gets done and insurance. Those are the three. Yeah. And the argument for large health systems was always economy of scale. Right. And Uh. so the question is, is that are we saving money or saving patients money um, to with these economies of scale? And I don't know that we necessarily see that at this point. Right. So we may. Oh, it's so expensive. It is. It is very expensive. And, And I don't think most people have an understanding of why healthcare costs what it does. You talk to healthcare economists, you talk to physicians that kind of specialize in that. Everybody has their own ideas, but it's it's kind of a it's kind of everybody has their piece of the pie, right? And nobody wants to give up their piece to lower costs. And um, I think a statistic that has always resonated with me, like the physician cost to actually see the physician, is only seven percent or less. Seven of of taking care of. So when you look at the big picture, um, that number always always resonates with me. So so when I go into the ER because I broke my arm and it costs you know, $13,000, 7% of that is me seeing you on, on average. And you have to realize that there's different dynamics, right? Sure. So, um, you know, I've always said my, my dad nearly died and, um, had a head bleed and, you know, what's his life worth, right? That's what I said <laughs> yeah. you know, on the backside of that. So it's, it's kind of a, a tough dynamic of you want that physician there. You want those nurses there. Um, so what does it cost to have them there? And so, it's really hard to define that, right? And so um, if you have an emergency or a big health problem and you you need that healthcare team, the physicians and nurses, you know, you want them to be there, right? And so one of the crises that we've seen over COVID is that, you know, nurses have been paid more and more over that time frame, And so, you know, they're finally being valued more appropriately for what they're worth, right? And so that's been a big big problem over the years is that, you know, nurses have been underpaid for sure. And so it's, um, that dynamic's not even local, that's nationwide. And mm-hmm. so nurses have been speaking out about that for a long time. And it, um, it really has been interesting because as the supply and demand kind of over COVID, 
gave them a lot of choices, the the pay for nurses skyrocketed recently. And you think that's a good thing? Um, it's really interesting because it's um, the market. It'll settle out where wherever it wants to. I think market forces will kind of settle out where pay should be. Yeah, I think it kind of pushed things a little bit. Um, it may hurt us actually short term because you know when you talk talk about economics, you know, are the nurses going to be or even physicians for that matter going to be willing to work for a certain price or are they going to start saying I'm I'm just going to sit on the sidelines because I don't need need to work right now so that may hurt the workforce um, one way or another but yet, yet to be determined yeah do you do you have an opinion on the financial incentives with covid I don't I don't, this isn't a COVID podcast. I'm not trying to get in that, but it just was a thought that came to mind. Why are nurses getting paid so high? Why are hospitals getting paid so heavily for COVID diagnosis or treating COVID patients? I understand the stress of treating a COVID patient is very unique, but it did seem like we did a foolish thing in the beginning, which was incentivized COVID diagnosis. And so there was a lot, a lot of people getting a primary diagnosis of COVID in the hospital. And it, what it looked like to us, to people outside of the hospital, what it looked like was the hospitals padding their numbers to get more money. Yeah, and I can tell you that I was never told to put COVID on a chart or anything like that. So we're not, um, there's probably a little conspiracy to that. I would tell you that the cost of uh, changing rooms over and staffing and um, the dynamics of taking care of COVID patients was costly. Sure. So, um there was some need for that. Now we can talk about the politics of handing out big checks from the federal government for these kind of things. You know, I, I personally believe there's always a huge um, cost that comes to that to society when we when we kind of write a blank check mm -hmm. for, for certain things. And um, we definitely want a healthy healthcare system, but um, that's probably what I would question more is why, you know, that, that big kind of uh, COVID relief as it's labeled. Right? right. But I don't know that at the local level, I ever felt um, a push or I never heard from anybody at our, our facility to say, Hey, you have to diagnose this person or that person, or we're going to get, you know, we're going to get paid better if you put this on the chart. Um, I don't, I don't think I ever really felt that kind of push. So I, I can push back against that a little bit. Well, that's good. I, I, I did not, I had not heard that Parkview was was playing around in those kind of practices. It was just more on the federal or national level where Medicare is going to pay you $12,000 for a COVID patient as opposed to you know, $4,000 for a upper respiratory infection patient. Yeah, it's my understanding there were some policies that if somebody had a COVID diagnosis, they they were essentially you were there wasn't going to be a lot of questions about whether right. the chart got paid or not. And so there may be some um, dynamic there that happened, but we weren't all sitting around saying, Hey, can I you weren't twisting your mustache? <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> I, I will assure you that most of us were busy and working, you know, uh, I believe in, that in, in the, in the trenches, none of us were sitting there thinking like, how can I make this chart look like it's COVID so that we get paid? I, I don't think anybody, I never heard that. And to be honest, most people were busy enough that they weren't <laughs> thinking about that. So is, is what you're running on? If you get in the state Senate seat, is fixing healthcare part of your priority? Actually, I'll be upfront. I was not running. I, I don't feel called to run for healthcare in general. It's definitely a, a point to that. Um, I have some 
uh, background and it's definitely where I'm at. But I think it's really interesting that I felt like there were a lot of issues otherwise that I felt like I needed to run on. And so uh, you mentioned um, kind of the our, our pocket card or whatever you want to yeah. call it. And, you know, my background is being a pro-life physician. That's really kind of where my heart is at and where the dynamic is at. You know, we have a Republican supermajority in, in Indiana, so conservative state. You know, actually, a lot of people say one of the most conservative states, yet we still have uh, abortion on demand in Indiana. So that means it really is a is a, a concern of ours that we've not been more uh, bold to step out and say, hey, this is wrong um, to kill unborn babies and and to really kind of look at that from an from an outside that that breaks my heart every time you think about that, you know, and so those those kids have value and their lives have value. And so we really want to push on that. You know, there's a lot of dynamics at play right now, even with, uh, you know, Roe v. v. Wade being uh, argued at the Supreme Court. We actually went, uh, a large group of physicians went and stood on the steps as they were arguing the Supreme Court was Roe v. Wade versus the Dobbs decision, um, which some people may be familiar with. But there's, you know, almost a hundred of us standing there on with our white coats on and the Supreme Court steps is a pretty powerful moment praying together and um, kind of talking through that dynamic. And so that will help, but that does not end abortion, right? Like that is not a, it just gets rid of the federal kind of uh, Supreme Court ruling from way back when. And, um, but Indiana still needs to act. And so there, there's some concerns that, you know, the legislature won't come back and do continue, you know, won't come back and actually um, set, set guidelines. I think we could do more whether uh, the Supreme Court rules in the right way or not. So it, um, it's interesting that we, we still have abortion um, readily available in, in Indiana. All right. I want to get into the abortion thing more, but let's rattle off those other three. So yeah. you're pro-life. You would like the Second Amendment to be upheld and honored. You want medical freedom or no medical tyranny. And what was the fourth? Or was it just three? It was just three. It was those three. So yes. we, we've, we've done a lot to speak, and uh, we really thank uh, Representative Smaltz for uh, oh. pushing a lot of constitu- the constitutional carry and uh, driving the discussion about uh, Second Amendment and making sure that we, we uphold that. As you can see, uh, with unrest across the world, it's right. um, why it's important. Um, and then the medical tyranny thing is something we spoke heavily on, and um, you know, as a physician and... Um, working at a, a large healthcare company, you know, everybody looked at me kind of crossways when I spoke up and actually wrote an op-ed and testified against vaccine mandates, right? You did. I did. And so um, we actually went to the state house and testified on public record. And, um, you know, we could sit and talk about vaccines for probably a week, you and I. Yeah. Um, but it's really not even about the vaccines for me necessarily. I agree. It, it's about the way we treat people and, um, uh, truth in things and actually how we uh, coerce people into getting uh, health care, right? And so you're talking about a, a vaccine mandate and telling people they have to go get something that they had reservations about. If you hadn't gotten the vaccine by this point, uh, you clearly have reservations about <laughs> yes, it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I want people to go to their doctor and talk to their doctor and, you know, have a, that discussion with them. And so it's not a, it's not a, when you start having the federal government kind of put those um, we talked about that top-down heavy approach already. Um, it really was an interesting approach to this whole thing. 
Yeah, my argument, I, I've tried to be consistent through this whole thing. I know I get uh, viewed as, as anti-vaccine, but um, I just don't like one-size-fits-all medicine. One-size-fits-all medicine has a lot of opportunity for harm because not everybody is the same. I see it here in my practice. Like, what, I use manipulation, which is a very safe tool. Not everybody responds the same to manipulation, and so I have to have other tools. Some people actually get worse when I adjust certain parts of their body, and so I have to actually change the way that I operate and just mandating if you come into my office, you have to get this adjustment. That I am opposed to that, just like I'm opposed to the one-size-fits-all vaccine mandate or whatever the medical thing is, and I think that's what you're – you're fair, right? That's what you're arguing for. Yeah. You're not saying the vaccine's inappropriate 100% of the time. Right. You're you saying- could plug in any treatment in that yes. same discussion, right? So I think that a lot of people on the other side muddy the picture by saying, hey, you're anti-vaccine or you just don't like modern medicine or those kind of things. And, you know, I practice and studied it probably just as much as anybody else locally, right? And so it's it's not a discussion about the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not. And I've had those individual discussions with my family members and, you know, honestly, it's their decision to make, right? That's not, it's my patient's decision to make. I do that every day. You know, we talk about risk benefits of treatment, whether you're having a stroke or a heart attack or any of that. And if we get outside of that, now we're mandating and we're really not respecting our patients. Right. And so it's an interesting conversation. And if your patient chooses to not go along with one of your recommendations, you still give them care. Correct. And there's, there's a lot of discussion about where that um, line goes, right? Because there's some things you can't do because somebody chose sure. a, a certain treatment path or those kind of things. So that, again, is an individual discussion. We shouldn't have broad policies based on those kind of things. Right. right. It should be done on the individual level. Right. All right. Let's, let's go back to the abortion thing. Um, let me play devil's advocate here. And say, let's say we abolish abortion in this state, or let's say even federally. Um, I don't know that this would happen, but I would assume that there would still be people who attempt to get an abortion, and that would be done in back alleys or back rooms, probably done by not medical people. A lot of people would get harmed. How, how does that play into... Um, the pro-life argument. Is there any thought into the consequence of what happens when we abolish this thing? Yeah, when we talk about being pro-life and even our personal journey, we can talk about a little bit, but it has very little to do with um, the legislation. Legislation is the starting point, right? Like it's, it, it, we want to have a pro-life society. So if you're a pregnant woman in crisis and you show up to my emergency department, my goal should be to support you and help you through that that pregnancy, even if you feel like it's crisis or there's something um, bad about that to you. Um, and I think the same thing should happen everywhere else. Crisis pregnancy centers, uh, adoption, as we talked about, all of those things help promote life, right? And so the, these, you know, what we talk about, uh, back alley abortions and that kind of stuff, they happen now, right? So sure. You can actually order a pill from China on the internet and have an abortion in your living room, right? How scary is that? Freaky. You, and that happens all the time now. We just don't know the exact numbers of that. So that's already happening. Um, really what people kind of uh, think about is that surgical abortion, late-term abortions, yeah. or even you know 
crazy that we're talking about killing newborn babies now, you know? And so we're kind when of... When I saw that headline, I thought, "There's this has got to be from The Onion. This is not real. Right. And so it just, uh, like I said earlier, it makes your heart break when you start thinking about this stuff. And um, uh, Alicia and I's conversations have just been over the years has been to make sure that we're available and walking with women that um, either need help for certain reasons, whether you know, a baby should never be killed for financial reasons. I think that's a, one of the biggest reasons people talk about having abortions. Well, you know, we talked about earlier in medicine, how much is a life worth, right? Yeah. And so to say that you're going to kill a child based on a financial decision, we don't want that to ever happen. There are great resources out there. There's great groups and people that are willing to help women through that. Um, that and really, that's probably the biggest discussion of why I shouldn't, w- women should have abortion is a financial decision. And so when you boil it down to that, that's an easy fix, right? Sure. You, if you want to keep your baby, we'll help you. If you want to put your baby up for adoption, we'll help you. Those are really the, the choices that you have, right? And so we don't think uh, abortion should be a choice in that picture at all, and nor does it need to be. It's kind of a false argument to say, hey, money is my decision maker on whether I have this child or not. Do you have a finger on the pulse of where you stand as far as physician? Are you in the minority or well, Indiana is interesting. I think we have a large group of physicians who are pro-life. And I know that because we are, I'm part of a group of physicians that are very much pro-life. I think on the other side, there's a very loud minority that are um, pro-abortion. And then there's probably a large group in the middle that just kind of don't speak one way or another, right? So that's mm-hmm. typical of most, most issues. But I think as a physician, when you're talking to people, most people value life. I think a lot of people are scared to talk on the issue because they're afraid of getting shouted at or told they, you know, don't care for women or they hate women and those kind of things. And that could be farther from the truth. You got to remember every time an abortion happens, a life is taken. Right. And so um, as physicians, that's way outside of our uh, morals and ethics. And being an ER doctor, someone who probably has to deal with death and life every single day you go into work. How has that changed your view on this thing? I'm, and it has to, doesn't it? The fact that you have to save people's lives, and there are, I'm sure, people who have died under your care that you could not save them, and you view abortion through that lens. What does that do to you? Yeah, I think um, it, it really, emergency medicine is interesting, right? Because we are at the, um, you know, at the place where people bring you patients. You don't have the history, you don't know what's right. going on. It's um, people are already dying when they're in front of you. Things happen that you don't know why they happen. And so you learn very quickly as a trainee early on that there's a lot of things out of your control. And actually, I mean, my faith has a lot to do with that. I tell people all the time, every patient I've ever taken care of is eventually going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a lot more important things than med- medicine in that process. And so, um, I think there was a point very early on where I had this lady, she was in her sixties and just sitting at her bedside. We kind of already knew what was happening and that we couldn't save her. And everybody's scrambling to kind of try to figure out what we can do, what we can do. And, um, it was just probably the first moment I just sat down and just talked to, to the lady as she's dying. And she passed away right there in front of me as I was <sighs> talking to her. Right. And that was the first moment I, I, you know, it sounds really bad. I went through medical school and you just kind of, you, you get a little, I guess, uh, disconnected. Uh, it's kind of a defense mechanism of physicians, right? And uh, probably the first time I sat there and just realized, hey, I got to make sure that I'm you know, taking care of the human 
there um, while I'm doing the medicine kind of thing. So that's really, we, we try to make people comfortable, families comfortable, um, make sure people's heart is in the right place, those kind of things as we're taking care of them. You don't always have that opportunity, right? So uh, connecting with people is a, a big part of that. Yeah. So your best medicine in that scenario was to sit. Yep. There was no, there was no surgery or medicine or anything that, you know, this was it. This was the end. Right. And so the best thing you could do for that person, uh, was comfort, right? There, there was no great medicine. There was no, uh, you know, the surgeon's not going to fix you kind of thing. And that's what we forget in modern medicine, right? Is that we think modern medicine, you have a problem, you go there, they fix it. You're all better. Right. Um, and I think there's a, there's a, a defense mechanism built in all of us that just want to believe that medicine can keep us alive forever. Now we're living longer than we ever have. Right. So there's, but there's a lot of health things that go along with that, but um, you know, medicine can only do so much. Right. Yeah. Even though <laughs> we were talking about it earlier, but even though we know the contrary, right. Death is inevitable. We still behave as if that's the truth that, that the doctor's going to fix my problem. Every time I go in there, there's going to be a fix. And, man, that is just not the truth. It is just not even close to the truth. And I, I am sure being a man of faith, having to have that job that you just described, I don't know how you would do that job without it. Yeah, and, I, and we try to talk with our colleagues that are struggling, and um, it's a great time to witness, right? And so you, you have a... Emergency medicine has one of the highest burnout rates of all. I can't imagine how it wouldn't. Right. When you talk about stressful jobs, it's, it's really interesting. You have like air traffic controllers, you have fighter pilots, and you have emergency physicians, right? So I think trauma surgery kind of fits right in there with that. And so it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that, and we're all a group of pretty level-headed, um, you know, kind of, it's interesting. You think you'd have a bunch of adrenaline junkies. There's a little bit of that to it, but it's a fairly level-headed group of, of docs and nurses that work with us that it's pretty awesome to see a group come together to try to save somebody's life. Uh-huh. It's a, you know, everybody has their job, just does their thing. It's, it's, there's a reason there's shows about emergency medicine and ER and those kind of things, because it's, it's really kind of a fantastical thing. Yeah. I think politicians also have a high burnout rate too. It's interesting. So I really don't consider myself a politician, right? Great, because so, I don't like politicians. So when you you meet people in this whole process of running for office, and you realize very quickly who's there to try to do the right thing and who's there. Who's the politician. Right. They're either advancing their agenda or some hidden agenda, and they can talk a good game. But I think what's cool about being an ER doc is my job's to see somebody, talk to them, and figure out what's really going on, Right. So it's interesting that that actually really applies to this whole realm of public service and that kind of stuff. Because my job is to go out there, talk to people, figure out what's going on in the community, what the needs are, what people are worried about, and try to speak that into the public realm, right? Whether it's legislation or just uh, talking on issues, um, that's kind of the job. And so it kind of fits the bill really well. So you're literally transitioning yeah. the same skill set. It's a pretty cool, cool thing. And um, as you said earlier, I think... I do a fairly good job. I'm known for moving pretty quickly in the emergency department. That's one of the things. But um, I do get some good feedback saying, hey, you know, you can connect with people. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's a good thing. And I think we, uh, we kind of lose that as a skill set somewhat, right? Even you and I both said we kind of retreated from the world kind of yep. thing. And 
Um, that's not what we're really called to do. I don't think, I, I think we're called to protect our family and, uh, you know, our hearts and that kind of stuff, but really we're called to, to go spread the word. Yeah. I'm still trying to wrestle with that a little bit. I want to protect my family as much as possible, but I still also need to be a part of the community that we're here. So that's a, a good point, but okay. So let's, let's try to put a nail into this abortion thing. I think it's, clear that you as a physician and I would agree with you I want everyone to understand that I do agree with you I asked you the devil's advocate question just to ask it's very understandable as a doctor that abortion is wrong like just period period the argument is and I would be way better off if this was the argument on the pro-choice side we understand it's wrong however we still want the ability to do it and they don't ever say that but it's just very clearly wrong. I, I know that it's a woman's body, and so it's a weird topic because, yes, your life depends on that life growing, so who gets the choice? But very clearly taking the life of a child is wrong, just period. Absolutely. And that is what you just you don't want just the policy to change. You want the mindset of the nation to change, or at least... Indiana. Right, because you talk to a lot of people that say, well, I can't really judge somebody else for what they're doing. But we do that all the time, right? Sure. We do that all the time. You know, we judge people for how they drive. We judge people for uh, murdering another person, right? So it's not, we just want that, uh, the thought process of that being normalized and being, because you clearly talk to women that have an abortion, they know it's wrong. They yes. absolutely know it's wrong. And you talk to abortionists and they know it's wrong. You know, it's, it's, uh, some of them smirk and smile and they, you know, the evil comes out that you can see in their heart. It's, it's really bad. Um, but that doesn't make it right. All right. So the second thing, second amendment, why'd you put that on there? Yeah, because I really think it's an important value and it actually draws a line of whether you believe in our constitution and our rights really. So that discussion about the second amendment goes there because there's a lot of people who will say, Oh, well, you don't need a gun. You don't need, we don't need to protect ourselves. The police are there. Well, there's a huge whole discussion about that, of whether you have the right to protect yourself and your family. Um, that extends beyond your household. It's pretty clear that that does. And um, you can see when there's civil unrest and there's uh, riots and problems, what do people do? They arm themselves to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it's, it's interesting to have any discussion of whether, you know, a law-abiding citizen should be able to exercise the right to own a firearm, right? And so that's kind of where we draw the line as you start taking away rights or, or imposing limitations or, or a back, you know, or a licensing to have your handgun or a registry to have your firearm. Um, those things kind of cross a line. And I really don't, I don't hesitate to say if somebody has broken the law or they've lost that right because they've broken the law, we can penalize them all we want. I think that's sure. what people get around. But it's really hard to say when you look at all the literature across the country that these handgun laws and these restrictive practices really protect society at all. Um, there's bad things that happen. There will always be bad things that happen. Um, but it's really hard to say that that has anything to do with our exercising our right to bear arms. Well, I had not really given too much thought to this Second Amendment issue until, well, until COVID happened, really. And more in particular, what we watched happen in Australia, countries that had firearms legal and then removed. 
And the fact that their government can kind of come around and push them around in a, a way that looks so wrong, just like beating them in the streets and pushing them back and tear gas and just for trying to go out and buy groceries. And, you, you know, the ability to say no and mean it, I think is extremely important. And also the, the threat of violence, it's just interesting. I know you and I are both Christians and so... Um, talking about when violence is appropriate is a very, very difficult subject <laughs> because as a Christian, um, you know, God is love and peace and Jesus is kind. That's what everyone views. But if you, if you actually read your Bible, there's a lot of violence in there and a lot of God condoned violence. One of my favorite uh, stories, is it Nathaniel who rebuilds the wall? And he has one hand, he talks about having one hand on a shovel and one hand on his sword. And I just, I think that we as Christians view the posture of no, and I mean no, to the point of if you try to cross that line, there's going to be a violent altercation that is always viewed as wrong. And I just don't see that evidence play out, especially in real life, but even if you look back and you're looking in the Bible and scripture like that just doesn't seem to correlate. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting dynamic even within our own congregation. We were Mennonite for a long time. Yeah. And we're not an emotional now, but it uh, it's a very pacifist culture. Right. And so um, that's been really the background. But it's the right to defend yourself is clearly um, a line that I think people can have a lot of discussions about within the church, right? And so you're defending your family and or standing up to to evil, right? And so that's kind of an inter- interesting discussion. And um, the firearm's just a, a tool to to do that. And so I don't think where we're at in society, people are scared, right? And so they're scared yeah. of some uprising or um, some militia taking over here or there. And that's not what I'm talking about right now. That's not, you know, I don't think we need to to have a violent revolt or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, everybody's going to take something to an extreme. Right. And right. you're you're not condoning that kind of... No, no. And you can look at, see that, you know, you should have the right to protect yourself. There's a, that layer. But there's also a, a layer of, um, you know, a well-armed society as a deterrent to any national threat, too, yes. right? So there's big picture implications to that. So really, that's the it's a simple dynamic. You know, you should have the right to defend yourself and a nation that's armed is very hard to, to attack. Right. So. And, and so the what you are running on is to maintain a constitutional right of carry in the state. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty simple dynamic. And so it's not it really the reason we talk about it is that alone. You know, it's a constitutional right. You either believe in the Constitution or you don't. Are there other states that have all of these gun laws? I, I don't know. I'm very ignorant on this issue. Are there other states that have really severe gun restrictions? Have there been people who have chosen to ignore those laws and trump them with, hey, Second Amendment says this, your laws don't get to supersede the Second Amendment? Yeah, the there's states that have very heavy-handed gun laws. You can't own a handgun outside of your house, and you can't you know, own certain rifles, those kind of things. And so those type of states come down very heavy-handed on people that are wanting to stand up and and fight those. And there's been some instances where people are traveling, traveling through other states with their right. handgun and things like that. And so um, that's really caused problems in the past. You so, want more coffee? Um, so we really, uh, that's part of it. But it's, uh, 
you know, we've got, I think that's a, a pretty straightforward issue when it comes to just talking about constitutional rights. Yeah, that seems pretty simple. Right. It, it's there in our founding documents. It was there for a, a good reason, and, and you would like to keep honoring that reason. And I, I guess I just, I'd never realized how, um, how important of a deterrent that was until we started to see the overreach of government in our lives over the last two years. Right. I think uh, COVID's highlighted that across the world, yeah. right? Like civil unrest um, along with government overreach. There, there's a really, I think there's a really, we're really far from a line where I would ever condone any violence against a government, right? So right. I think we're really far from any of that. But um, I think it's highlighted a lot of concerns, um, even in society, about protecting yourself. So the final thing that you're running on. Actually, we had two more. So... Um, one was the anti-mandate, which we covered yes. quite a bit, but it really, it, it was important to us. And it's a big reason after I felt called to run, I'm like, it was very affirming uh, to see like, hey, we need to speak on these issues. And um, it did put me in a tough spot, right? Like I'm a physician, I work mm -hmm. part of a, I, I'm kind of taking, I'm willing to take a, a stand whenever, when a lot of other people were kind of getting um, either quieted down or were, were really just falling in line kind of thing. And um, I was really ostracized for that during the time. And, you know, there were threats with this mandate of losing our job and that kind of stuff. And it, it was kind of an odd, odd place to be, right? Like I'm, my, part of my identity is emergency physician. So now if I can't practice as an emergency physician anymore, uh, what am I going to do? And thankfully, um, the people around us kind of did the right thing and, and stood up for us. I think they kind of saw that, that boldness that stepped out in us and realized what that. What people around you? Uh, there were physicians that spoke up to it for us, nurses that actually spoke up for us, and administrators that. So spoke when up you announced that you're running, and these yeah. are the things you're running on, you kind of started getting yeah the wagon circled and shot at a little bit. Yeah, big time, big time. Because when you are in healthcare, right? You, we talked about it all already. Like if you don't follow that top down approach and just fall in line, it, the dissenting opinion gets crushed right now, right? Uh -huh. And so that's bad for healthcare and. Um, all, all I did was stand up and question, you know, why are we doing this? And I got pretty heavy handed approach real quickly. Um, and so, you know, as president of the emergency physicians uh, society in, in Indiana, and um, they were pretty rocked by that. Our hospital was rocked by the fact that I was willing to stand up and say, Hey, let's pause and say, you know, mandates aren't good. Let's protect people that their conscience rights and, mm -hmm their religious freedom rights is really what it comes down to. Right. So are you still the president? Did they remove you? Did what did they what happen? We, I, I'm no longer the president there. We'll leave it at that. And so it, um, and you really shouldn't represent a, a group of people that you don't, don't align with anyway. And so it, uh, I thought we could enact some change from there, but I, there's no, uh, no bitter feelings there or anything like that. But it, uh, we really should, be willing to speak out even as professionals and physicians. I don't want to work in a place where they're, I'm, I'm just told to sit down and shut up. Right. Like, yeah. So, and I don't want to do a job where I can't freely practice. And so it really felt there was no question for me whether I should step up if I was going to lose my job because I was willing to stand up and speak against mandates. Um, there was no question to me whether I should do that or not. And so it really was very, Little to no hesitation to do that. I'll tell you that my family was a little worried that, you, sure. know, you know, you've worked. 
um, you, you get it. Like how, I do. Many, how many years of school do you go to, to get to this point and 10 years of practice, I'm established. Um, and, and now you step out and put that on the line. It, uh, it's really interesting. And, it, and just this political run in any way, when you run for office, you, you, I don't think things any differently today than I did two years ago, but you put everything on paper, you tell people what you're about and immediately you get this back. They're going to hate you for it. Right. Exactly. So, um, it's, it's pretty amazing how that dynamic works, but, um, I still feel a boldness today to say, Hey, mandates are wrong, right? We don't, we don't force treatment on any sane individual, Mm -hmm. um, that, that needs it. And even people that can't make decisions for their themselves, we actually have very strict limitations on what we can force on them. Right. And so, yeah, we're taking a very, um, you know, a, a, a vaccine, which we already said, like, it's not about that. It's about taking any medicine and you like, just, let's just say you had a, a respiratory infection and you came to me and I said, Hey, the federal government mandates that I give you this medicine for this. And you're like, no, I don't want to take that. Well, I'm going to report you for not, right. not taking it. You're <laughs> going to you're going to lose your job for not taking it. And it's kind of just it's just an interesting dynamic. Um, and you know, we have to also talk about how we as a society interact and like what those you know, like everybody says. Well, you have to wear shoes into a gas station and those kind of things. And um, there, there's a big big difference. So they're trying to muddy the waters there with the dynamic. And really, the only question is, should we mandate a medical treatment on somebody? whether they want it or not. And that's the only question. Yeah. The shoes in a gas station, the seat belt. I I've heard those arguments. I, I get what you're trying to parallel. Those are not medical devices that they're, they're just not it's wearing shoes. Is not the same as taking a drug. So I think that one falls flat pretty quick. Actually, I think most of the arguments fall flat pretty quick. I, yeah. I really, and, and when you simplify it to, should we mandate something on an individual or not? It really is that question. So every, right. every discussion outside of that really is just uh, muddying the water and taking a bigger bigger picture on that. So I, I think we've really kind of covered that for the most part. I think the other thing we missed that we really took a big stand on um, and had, we actually held a forum with a, a large number of teachers and people. Uh, oh, yes, that was it. Yep. And so we, we really have spoken out heavily against um, a lot of the divisive to- topics in schools. So things like critical race theory, um, and even really um, some of the grooming and stuff that's going on with uh, transgender or gender dysphoria and those kind of things, um, you know, talking, it's been a big thing in Florida right now. You're seeing yeah. like talking to kindergartners about sex in general really is just kind of a, a bizarre thing. Right. And so um, we actually got a ton of backlash for even speaking out on those things locally. Right. In Fort Wayne. In Fort Wayne. So it's really interesting. Um, a part of the discussion is we don't, we don't ever want to, we're not trying to be anti-teacher, right? You're trying to set up a system where we can partner with teachers, parents and teachers can partner together. And actually individuals can feel when they see these things, they can speak up and talk about it. Actually, we heard from dozens of teachers that are like, well, we can't speak up because our job and our pay is reliant on whether our administrators, uh, you know, kind of grade us kind of thing. And so, um, that was an interesting dynamic. And even we talked to a couple of teachers that have been reprimanded for speaking up about seeing some of those things. And so it really is um, concerning even locally. I probably started this process just like you, like mm-hmm. we don't have this here. We don't have this discussion here. Right. We have examples in Carmel. We have examples in Gary, Indiana um, of where these things are kind of uh, 
been inserted in schools and even kids at a young age. And, and we'll call it what it is. It's, it's coercive, it's divisive, and it's, it's grooming to some extent um, when you're trying to teach kids uh, mistruth. I, you know, the big thing right now is I'm not a biologist. I can't tell you what, I, uh, and it doesn't really take a biologist. You know, I am a, I have a biology degree. It didn't really take me that to understand uh, what a man and a woman is, what a boy and a girl is. And I'm yeah. very comfortable saying what a boy and a girl is. I'm a, a physician. I understand that there are people with genetic, um, you know, um, differences where they have different chromosomes than you or I. And we want to respect those those people. That's very different than what we're talking about, right? And so part of this whole conversation is they want to defend that that whole discussion by, you know, picking the the anomalies and the the very small percentage of of people that have actual true chromosomal abnormalities, right? Mm-hmm. So it uh, it just one of those things that the discussion just gets muddied by those those kind of discussions, right? And so we want to make sure that you know we're protecting kids in schools and schools are a safe place to have discussions about math and english and and we we don't want to penalize teachers for trying to care for their students that's not what this is about we we know a ton of good caring teachers it's about just making sure schools are a safe place for kids so i think you're very wise in that um Probably the most important voter issue right now is what we just touched on, is, is what's happening to our children in our schools. I, I can't believe that that's the most important issue. Uh, it's shocking to me, but it's probably more, people are going to come out to the polls to vote for that more than they are the abortion issue, more than they are a Second Amendment issue. And um, the fact that you as a doctor are willing to say, um, no, there is truth in gender, and we've known this truth for a long time, and no, you don't have to be a biologist to say so. Um, you'll get some stones thrown at you for saying that, but they're not going to land very hard. Like, this one is so obviously wrong that um, the people who are willing to stand up and say, we understand that there are are different sexes, and there are different chromosomal abnormalities, and there are, are different dysphorias, but the standard is male and female, and we're not going to try to groom every single child to believing that, that there's some other false reality. Like, the fact that you can, can stand up and say that, I think you're going to get a lot of people that are going to go, I'll vote for that guy. Yeah, and it's really, um, it's actually become an issue in our, our race and our campaign. We've, we've always taken a stand on this, and so you get that, you know, you're talking about politicians and politics. Mm-hmm. So you're going to hear a lot from other candidates about, oh, that's an issue for us. And uh, really it comes down to a boldness of being able to speak out on those things. Man, was there another thing? You said there were two. Uh, we talked about the mandate. Got there. it, got it. All, all good there. So, all right, when do we vote? Uh, May 3rd is the Republican primary coming up. And so that'll be um, two weeks away from today. So it comes real quick and... Um, we, uh, we need as much support as we can get. We need people to go out and vote. I think one of the things you talk about, about people being frustrated, even amongst people that we hear that from, we first thing I ask them is, do you vote? Mm-hmm. And um, What's you know, the answer you get? The answer is no a lot of times. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And so we really encourage people to go vote. And so people that are our age, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, uh, late 30s, um, they kind of are frustrated but don't participate. And so that's an interesting dynamic for sure. So 
people are, that are my age, they're not registered to vote. They don't even know where they're voting. They don't have any care to vote, but they're upset with the current system. Yeah, we can't, we can't have that anymore. That needs to be done. Yeah. What are your chances? Uh, we, we feel pretty good. We've been working hard, and I'll tell you that anybody that tells you they know or they're going to win or not, not win, they don't, nobody knows. So there's a lot of political science and that kind of stuff beyond this, but uh, we've got a fighting chance for sure. We've been working hard. We huge grassroots movement. We have people out there, volunteers, mm -hmm. knocking on doors, making phone calls every day, and uh, the support from the community has been awesome, man. Uh, knock on a door and somebody opens their door, you don't even know, and they give you a big hug, and it's like, um, <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome. So that's very encouraging. So that's happened to you? You knock on a yeah. door, you have no idea who they are, and yeah. they're yeah. like, oh. And it's uh, It's been fun. Like, when I started this whole process, there's a lot of politicians and people in political circles they are like, you're going to be discouraged, you're going to be crushed this whole time, and it's really been encouraging. Like, it really, really has been, and um, it's just been a, a testimony to stepping out and um, trying to do the right thing, and I, I've been... It's been pretty awesome. Do you have anything to say about your opponent? Um, we try not to talk about them at all. It's not about them. It's about us doing the right thing and being bold and speaking out on things. And, um, you know, they're going to try to make themselves look like that. And that's not what they are. So it's really it's really about what we're, we're doing and what we're about. So how have you done that? Are you still working? I, I do still work. I, I, <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. So you're an elder in your church. You were the president of the ER board. You are part owner in this physician's company that works for Parkview. You're full-time dad and husband and now running for politics. Do you have extra hours in your day? How are you doing this? Yep. I've always been, uh, you know, a 24 hour a day guy and it's, uh, <laughs> You know, I should I should be a lot skinnier than I am. <laughs> I, I've got a pretty good pretty good motor, and um, we we are cutting back from the emergency medicine work to do this. And so, um, you know, we have a part time legislature in Indiana, but it really is a full time job, and we want to do that that justice. So we've cut back quite a bit from working in the ER. And the nice thing about the ER is I can work shifts and fill in mm. essentially whenever that I'm needed. So that's kind of how we're doing things now. All right. So May second. May 3rd. May 3rd. Yep. And you're, which counties can so vote? So we, we're in District 14, so it's uh, kind of eastern DeKalb County and eastern Allen County. So it's a huge area uh, for state Senate. So there's only 50 state senators across Indiana. But it, uh, so it's really kind of. This that, is one of the larger. Yeah, it's a larger geographical district. So uh, it's almost all of eastern Allen County and eastern DeKalb County. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the corner or whatever we're calling this podcast <laughs> i know you're crazy busy i can't believe that you actually came on here and did this but i wanted to do this you had told me you have basically six weeks right where people are paying attention yeah and you need people to understand why and what you're doing and this form of discussion might be one of the better ways to do it we just kind of got into depth who you are where you came from why you're doing what you're doing and I don't know if you're going to make any change. I, I told you I don't like politics. It feels like professional wrestling to me. I've never been into politics, but now I see what you're saying, which is I can no longer complain and be passive. I have to now actually start doing things. Right. Actually, one of the biggest knocks against us by politicians is they're scared that we're going to actually do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> Oh, how wonderful that would be if you hey, actually... Thank did. you for having me on. This has been awesome. And I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Tyler.